Welcome to Disclosure. I'm Jean Boonstra. Well, Sean is away right now, and he's doing his Revelation Speaks Peace Seminar in the Seattle-Tacoma area, and so we decided that we'd like to share what Revelation Speaks Peace is all about with you. So today, we're going to hear Sean doing the same seminar in Minneapolis a little while ago. I hope you enjoy. Our topic tonight, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to move very quickly. We're going to go through the whole chapter, and that means we're going to have to move fast, because I want you to see the whole prophecy, because in Revelation chapter 6, we kind of see the way that prophecy is structured. A lot of the key prophecies in Revelation are structured like this, and in the book of Daniel. Now, Revelation chapter 6 is a chapter that not many people study anymore in its entirety. Some people take pieces out of it, but not many people read it in its entirety. A generation ago, or several generations ago, it was the topic of hot discussion. Everybody was into it. But tonight I want to show you the whole chapter because it's very, very important for understanding the rest of the book of Revelation. I really do want you to see it. But I know because we're going to move quickly, as we go through each section of that chapter, we'll only have time to touch on the highlights, and I will leave as many questions unanswered as I answered. I don't, I don't have much choice in it. So I'm going to ask you tonight to be patient with me because in time, the rest of it will all flesh out as we look at all of the other prophecies. So would you do that? Will you be patient with me tonight? No? (laughs) Well, okay, we're going to do it anyway. I mean, it wouldn't matter. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, I, I consider it such a thrill to open the Bible. Here is the voice of our almighty God and creator, and we have an audience with you. And I know how radically this book changed my life because it shows Jesus. And I'm asking again tonight that it would change my life again, that I would become more like Jesus because of the time we spent here. Lord, may we all hear your voice tonight. Forgive my sin, make me fit to speak, and we covenant with you that when you do speak to our hearts, we will follow. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I'm going to take you back to the very beginning of the book of Revelation and review something we began to look at last night because it is very important. Revelation 1 verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants things which must when shortly come to pass. Now, this is very important. God is showing John things that are going to happen in the future. But when do they begin happening? God says they'll begin happening shortly, which tells me the prophecies found in the book of Revelation were already beginning their fulfillment back in John's day. So while the book of Revelation is about the future, it's not just about our future. Sometimes we get very self-absorbed and we say, oh, this is all about the last generation and it's all about us. It is about the future, but it was also about John's future, which means that some of what's in Revelation has already been fulfilled. The fulfillment begins in John's day, and that's actually part of the way that the prophecies of the book of Revelation are structured. Some of it has already happened. 
And one place that you can see that in detail is in the prophecy of the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now I'm about to do something that will frustrate the daylights out of you. I'm going to cover Revelation chapters 2 and 3 in three minutes. Here we go. It's not really our topic tonight, but in the beginning of Revelation... There are seven letters to seven churches. They were real places in Asia Minor. They're addressed to real people in real churches that existed in the first century, and they deal with issues in those first century churches. But students of Bible prophecy over the centuries have noticed something very remarkable about those seven letters. Those seven letters, while they addressed real things in the first century, also happened to describe the history of the Christian church through the centuries absolutely perfectly. So the letter to Ephesus, it's the desirable church, mirrors what actually happened in the early apostolic church in its purity. The letter to Smyrna, the word myrrh is in there, the, the, the fragrance that you get by crushing the plant, the word crushed is in there. It mirrors what happens as Christians are persecuted by the early pagan Roman Empire. You've got the uh, letter to Pergamos, which mirrors a church that begins to fragment as we move down through history. It begins to fragment and become weaker because people begin to compromise on the truths of the Bible. You've got Thyatira, a time when we slip into the dark ages, and Christians, we know this, really started to misbehave and do some things that we should not be too proud of. You've got Sardis, which seems to mirror what happens as the church now moves into the 1500s and the 1600s, and people begin to proclaim truths from the Word of God again. Then you've got the church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, which mirrors what happens when we move into the 1700s and the 1800s, when you have the first and second great awakenings, and there's a revival in Bible societies and a, a revival in missionary societies, in the preaching of the gospel, and the preaching of the second coming. And then you've got Laodicea, the seventh church that the Bible describes as a last day lukewarm Christianity, which Paul says professes godliness but not the power thereof. Now, I just covered Revelation chapter 2 and 3 irresponsibly. We covered it in like three minutes But what's interesting, there is universal agreement on this. This one you can go and look at, and we may have a chance to look at it again. What we have in Christianity is almost universal agreement that these letters describe the first century, but they also describe the whole sweep of Christian history. Seven churches, the number of completion, showing the whole span of Christian history, and it does it somehow in advance. The descriptions fit perfectly, and that shows us how the book of Revelation is actually structured. The prophecies begin fulfillment shortly, John is told, all the way back in John's day, and then they move down through the history of the world. It's like the statue in Daniel 2. It begins in Daniel's day in Babylon, and then it goes Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Roman Empire, second coming of Christ. The general pattern you find in prophecy, and you're going to see this happen many, many times as we study together. The prophecy usually begins in the day of the prophet, in his moment, and then carries you all the way down to the end of time. Now, one thing that we looked at last night is the number seven. Seven was the number of completion and perfection. So there were seven churches. Tonight, we're going to see seven seals. There are seven trumpets. There are seven thunders. There are seven plagues. It's one of God's numbers. It's the the number of completion and perfection. And that's a principle that we already learned last night. So let me give you a new one for tonight. We kind of already mentioned it. 
Bible prophecy often repeats the same story from a different perspective. You're going to see that this coming weekend. We're going to get into Daniel chapter 8, and what you're going to discover is that Daniel 8 goes over much of the same ground as Daniel 2, but it adds new and interesting details, and it expands on the subject. Because God is a master teacher, and like any good teacher, he always repeats the subject material several times, adds more detail, and looks at it from another angle. And tonight you're going to find out that's actually how Revelation chapter 6 works. This is going to come as a surprise to many in our generation, but what I'm about to show you is what Christians understood for 1,800 years. It repeats what we just looked at so quickly in Revelation 2 and 3, and it shows us world history from another perspective. So now it's time to look at it. Are you ready to look at Revelation chapter 6, yes or no? Only three people. I'm done. Are you ready to look at Revelation chapter 6, yes or no? Wow, now I have to do it. What does the number 7 represent? Completion. Completion, perfection, it's God's number. Four horsemen of the apocalypse. Last night we looked at Revelation chapter 5 very quickly, and we followed John into the throne room of God in vision. It's an incredible scene if you remember. There's God on the throne with a scroll in his hand sealed with seven seals. And the angels cry out, who is worthy to open the scroll? And they can't find anybody until the slain lamb of God appears, Jesus Christ, and he takes that scroll. And tonight in Revelation chapter 6, the Lamb of God takes the scroll and he begins to open the seals one by one. And as Jesus opens those seals, he reveals what is actually now possible for his people because he gave his life at the cross of Calvary. And as Jesus opens those seals, I have to warn you in advance that he's about to show us a very honest picture of the future, including a very honest picture of Christians including our best moments and some of our not-so-good moments. You know, it's one of the things that I love about God. The Bible is not a piece of propaganda. I hear critics say, ooh, religious propaganda. It's not very good propaganda if that's what it is because God tells the unvarnished truth about his people. Noah got drunk. Moses murdered somebody. David committed adultery. It's not very good propaganda if it's propaganda. God tells the truth about his people. In the Old Testament, it's the story of Israel. And he tells the good parts when Israel is on track. And he tells the truth about when Israel is not on track. God tells us the truth. And now tonight, God's going to tell us the truth about his New Testament people. He's going to show both sides of the story. He's going to show us when we're behaving really well, and he's going to show us when we're not. Would you like to look at that? You're sure about that now? No? Buckle your seatbelts. Let's get started. Revelation 6 and verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. Do you see it? It's not a big mystery. God loves to show us things. That's why it's called revelation. Come on, have a look. I got something that I want to show you. Verse 2, and I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. It's a guy on a white horse. What in the world is he conquering and why is the horse white? Now, if you look through the book of Revelation, you'll find that color white repeated again and again and again and again. In Revelation 1, Jesus has white hair. In Revelation 2, the faithful are promised a white stone. In Revelation 3, the faithful have white clothing, white garments. In 
Revelation 4, the elders in heaven are dressed in white. In Revelation 6, the martyrs are given white robes to wear. In Revelation 7, the great multitude that John sees that nobody can number, dressed in white. Revelation 14, Jesus comes back on a white cloud. In Revelation 19, Jesus rides a white horse. Revelation chapter 20, God is seated on a white throne. White is all through the book. What does it mean? Well, remember now, John borrows two-thirds of the language in Revelation from the rest of the Bible. So how is that symbol, the color white, used in the rest of the Bible? You're listening to Sean presenting Revelation Speaks Peace, which was recorded live in Minneapolis. We're going to take a break, but we'll be back with much more. And as a reminder, you can always watch us at DisclosureRadio.com and listen on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jean Boonstra. You're listening to Disclosure. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions like, Where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and a second chance at life. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Welcome back to Disclosure. I'm Jean Boonstra. Well, today we're bringing you Revelation Speaks Peace. This is a Bible prophecy seminar that Sean is presenting right now in Seattle. And this recording that you're listening to now was recorded just a little while ago in Minneapolis. One of the most prevalent places you find it is in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Come now, it says. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The opposite of white in the Bible is red. Scarlet is the color of blood. It's the color of warfare. It's the color of fire. It's the color of death. And most importantly, it is the color of sin and impurity. But when sin and impurity are done away with, white becomes the color of forgiveness and purity. This is why to this day, it's a cultural hangover. It's come down through the generations. To this day, a lady going to her wedding will still put on a white dress to symbolize purity. Although in the 21st century, probably more of us should put on beige at our our weddings. I mean, it's just the times have changed. But purity is white. That's why we still go through that motion. In Revelation chapter 12, you find this woman dressed in white. And she's a symbol of God's perfect forgiven church. Well, how do I know a woman represents a church? It's really quite simple. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul compares the relationship of Christ and his church to a husband and a wife. The church is called the bride of Christ. In Ezekiel 16, God calls Israel his bride. In Jeremiah chapter 6, God says, I have compared the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. That's his love for us. Or his wife. And in Revelation 12, we'll look at this in a coming night. There's a pure woman dressed in white. It's God's pure people. This is why the horse is white. It's a picture of the first century apostolic church. The fire of the gospel message is still alive in the early believers' hearts. These are people, some of them, had actually talked to Jesus or they had talked to the disciples. They knew the gospel message firsthand. They knew their mission. They knew their purpose. They knew their calling. And they were so passionate about Jesus that they went out to conquer the world with the gospel message. Jesus said to them, I want you to go from this place and go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And they took it seriously. They went out on foot and they did it without email. They did it without Facebook. They did it without, they didn't even have a fax machine. They went on foot, and they were so successful in a single generation that Paul was able to talk about a gospel which had been preached to every creature under heaven already in his day. Wow, they conquered the world. How do you think the devil felt about that? He fails to conquer Jesus at the cross. He fails there. Jesus rises from the dead. He goes back up into heaven. And now the devil, we're going to see this when we get to Revelation 12, it describes it. He turns his wrath against the Christian church. He says, I've got to stop them from spreading the truth. So he creates trouble for the Christians. And now another horse rides onto the scene, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. White, the color of purity, still is to this day. Red, the color of impurity and sin, but also the color of bloodshed, warfare, death. The Bible says that peace would be taken from the earth, and that is historically exactly what happened. Suddenly, the wrath of the pagan Roman Empire falls on the Christian church. The Romans grew to hate the Christians. Now, in the very beginning, they didn't pay any mind to the Christians because, for the most part, Romans practiced religious liberty. You could believe whatever you wanted. They left you alone. But eventually, for some reason, the Romans suddenly turn against the Christians, And you probably remember this from high school if you weren't sleeping in history class in high school. Nero burned the city down one day, or he had one of his associates burn the city of Rome down. He lights a fire because he needs to make way for some of his building projects. But he can't admit that he lit it, and so they blame the Christians. So they start rounding up the Christians, and they throw them into the arena. This is where the stories of throwing Christians to the lions come. A Roman by the name of Tacitus, he recorded, they rounded up the Christians, they actually sewed them in animal skins, threw them in the arena, and turned packs of wild dogs loose on them to rip them limb from limb. Nero lit the circus on one occasion by dipping Christians in tar, crucifying them, and then lighting them on fire to light the games at night. It was an awful time to be alive. 
Peter crucified upside down. John boiled in oil by Domitian. This is an awful time to be a believer. The Roman Empire suddenly hates Christian believers. And it's from this period of history that we have some of the most remarkable stories of Christian faith. I I think of a guy by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John who wrote the book of Revelation. So two steps removed from Jesus himself. He's actually the bishop of Ephesus after John. And at one point they go and round him up because the Roman Empire is getting rid of Christians. And they take him to the stake to be burned alive. And there's a Roman official who can't make sense of this. He says to Polycarp, look, this doesn't make sense. You are already old. Why don't you just renounce Christ and you can live? Just go through the motions. Just say you renounce him. You can go back to your business as usual tomorrow. Just renounce him. What's the point of dying like this? History tells us he stood up tall. 86 years, he said, I have served him. He's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Once you know Jesus, you're not really afraid of much. Why? Because we have the sure word of prophecy. We know the future. It's already written. I understand that God's going to take care of it all. Even if I have to die, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be in the kingdom of Christ. Let me ask you tonight, if it came down to that, would you be okay? They lit the fires. He stood tall in the flames. It's the period of the red horse. Peace is taken from the earth. The bloodshed is absolutely unbelievable. And these people were willing to die so that you and I would have a copy of the scriptures that we can freely read tonight. If they weren't willing to make those kinds of sacrifices, we wouldn't be having this seminar. At the Council of Nicaea, after the persecution is finished in 325 A.D., History tells us that every single delegate, every single Christian delegate who showed up at that council was maimed somehow. Eye missing, limb missing, burn marks on their body. One of the bloodiest periods of history. But I'm telling you that persecution failed to conquer Christianity because the love of God will always outweigh the force of the devil. Love always beats force. It's one of the key differences between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. One is based on love and loyalty and a relationship. The other one is built on deception and manipulation and force. They tried to wipe them out, but they could not extinguish the light of the gospel. A church father by the name of Tertullian made the observation, the harder they try to wipe us out, the faster the gospel grows. He said the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. He said it's like mowing the lawn. Every time you cut it, it comes back thicker and stronger. Tertullian said every time they kill a Christian, there are 20 new ones to take his place. Couldn't extinguish it. Now the big question, why did they hate us? They accepted, the Romans accepted every religion under the face of the sun. All of them. Everything else was fine except for Christianity. Starting to sound familiar again. Why the attack on Christians? It's because Christians, especially as we get into the 300s, would not acknowledge the Caesar as a god. Every other religion just rolled Caesar into their list of gods. Okay, we can do that. But Christians only have one god. Anybody, nobody really believed that Caesar was a god. Nobody really did. Especially those who went to school with him as a kid, right? He's not a god. 
But symbolically, he represented the unity and the safety of an empire. If you have a massive empire full of conquered people, you have to have something that holds it together. And so they said the Caesar was the embodiment of Roma, the goddess of Rome. So you could believe whatever you wanted to believe. You could do whatever you wanted to do, but the Romans didn't want anything that would threaten that unity. So all you had to do was show up once a year, offer a pinch of incense to the emperor. That's it. That's it. And under one emperor, they even issued a certificate to prove that you'd done it. Here's your certificate. Only one group was exempt. It was the Jews. Because they were considered a state religion and they had helped Julius Caesar once upon a time and he'd given them all sorts of legal protections. All they had to do was offer to pray for the emperor. And in the beginning, they figured Christians were just another Jewish sect. But as it became obvious that there was a rift forming between them and it was different, the Christians didn't have a state religion and they didn't fall under the protection. So they had no exemption to offering incense to the emperor. None at all. And it was worse than that. They're considered a problem because they just don't fit into the culture. They didn't want to go to the hospital half the time, the Christians, because if the hospital was dedicated to Asculapius or Asclepius, depending on how you spell and pronounce it, he was the the snake god. He was the one in charge of health and recovery. It's actually the reason we still have a symbol on medical buildings that's sort of a a stick with a snake twined around it. Some people say, isn't that from Moses? No, no, it's it's, it's from the Romans. Now, perfectly safe to go to your doctor. He's not going to do what happened in in the Roman hospital. I don't want you to get too up. But back in those days, the priest of Asclepius, the serpent god, would actually come into your room and involve you in a religious rite. And Christians didn't feel comfortable with that. They weren't comfortable in the Roman schools because the Roman schools taught every god but the true one. And they actually taught alternate theories of where the human race comes from. Christians weren't comfortable with the entertainment of the day in the Roman Empire. Why? Because it was immoral and it was violent and they didn't want to participate. When the Romans put on a play and it called for a death scene, they went down to the jail and got a condemned criminal and they actually slayed the criminal on the stage so the art would be very realistic. We roll our eyes, oh, that is so barbaric. They only did it that way because they didn't have our computer graphics. We do it too. The Christians... Stuck out like a sore thumb. Rumors started to spread. You know they're cannibals. They eat flesh and drink blood. We heard they eat the body and drink the blood. Took the communion service, blew it out of proportion. They're incestuous. They call each other brother and sister, but they have agape love feasts. They meet in secret. What really goes on there? Well, they had to meet in secret. They were being persecuted. Eventually, everybody hates the Christians. It's the period of the Red Horse. It comes to a peak in 303 AD when Diocletian, the emperor, is goaded on by his junior emperor, Galerius, to ban Christianity in the empire. They're all of a sudden dismissed from their jobs in the civil service and in the army everywhere, and they're persecuted. It's the Red Horse. But it doesn't last forever, Revelation 6, verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The guy on this horse has scales. He's measuring something out. What is it? Well, this is one of the passages in the Bible that makes me squirm as a Christian because it tells the truth about our history. Here it comes. Verse 6. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. It's a day's wages. Three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the wine. This moves us into the next period of history, and this is a remarkable story. 
Something takes place just outside the city of Rome. Diocletian, the persecutor, he retires in 305 AD. But he leaves behind a system with four emperors, two senior ones, east and west, and junior ones, east and west. And he retires. He goes, he's one of the first to ever go into retirement. And the four emperors start to fight. They fight it out. And suddenly there's a fifth emperor because a guy who felt displaced, his name was Maxentius. His dad had been an emperor, but he got overlooked. So he went to Rome and he talked the Senate into making him an emperor. And the Senate was thrilled because they hadn't declared an emperor in generations. The army always did it. Yeah, we'll help. So now he's the fifth emperor. Disclosure continues after the break with more from Sean at Revelation Speaks Peace. Now, we've posted video from the event on our website. That's where you can also watch this show anytime. Go to DisclosureRadio.com. You're listening to Disclosure. Creation. Evolution. Where did the world come from? Where did you come from? Were you created in an instant? Did you evolve from another animal or life species? These are issues that are discussed in classrooms, textbooks, and sometimes around your break table at work when the conversation suddenly turns serious. These kinds of questions are answered in our free Discover Bible Guides. These 26 beautifully illustrated guides cover all the major themes of the Bible and they answer some of the hardest questions of life. You can get your free copy just for the asking by contacting me. Go to VOP.com and click on the tab that says Study. That's VOP.com, the tab that says Study. Or phone me, 888-456-7933. That's 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides, available just for the asking. I'm Jean Boonstra, and this is Disclosure. While Sean is away right now presenting his Revelation Speaks Peace seminar to thousands of people in the Seattle-Tacoma area, well, while he's gone, we thought that you would like a taste of what this is like. So let's continue with more from the seminar recorded in Minneapolis not too long ago. Constantine is one of the genuine ones. He's living up in northern Europe, Britain, Gaul, modern-day France, and he finds out about Maxentius. He has to deal with it. So he comes riding into town, and he's going to take Maxentius out of Rome. And everybody in Rome is nervous. Constantine's a great warrior. We don't really know how good Maxentius is. And, And Constantine's coming, and everybody's getting nervous. And Maxentius tries to calm everybody down. So like Belshazzar, he throws a party. He does. He he has games. Let's have chariot races. And so there's a chariot race. Now, Maxentius was hiding inside the city. He didn't want to go out in the field and fight. He knew if he hid inside, the city was nice and strong. Constantine sent people into the games. They were sitting in the audience. And after one race was done, somebody yells out, Hey, Maxentius, you're a big old chicken, aren't you? That's my modern translation of what they actually said. You're a coward. You won't go out and fight him. Another one says, yeah, that's true. You're a coward. It goes viral all over the stadium. Now he's got to go out and fight. So he goes to the soothsayers. He says, are there anything in the old Roman books about this? And they look and they say, oh, we have a prophecy. The enemy of Rome is going to die tomorrow. Oh, good. Constantine's going to die tomorrow. Boosts everybody's spirits. Somebody runs outside the city to Constantine. Hey, they got a prophecy. says that they're going to win. And Constantine's soldiers are down in the mouth now. Oh, Oh, and here we are attacking the eternal city. 
That's like attacking your mom and they've got a prophecy. We're going to lose. And Constantine says, I've got to come up with a sign too. We need something. So he gives them a sign. He gives them the key row. It's the letter X, C, like our CH, and the letter R. It looks like a P, but it's like the letter R. The first two letters in the word, Latin word for victory, crestus, but it's also the first two letters in the name of Jesus, Christus. Constantine's mom was a Christian. Constantine was not. They go to war the next day, October 28. Constantine wins. Fascinating story, but we don't have all night about how it happens. He credits the Christian God for the victory. He says, look at that. I had all the soldiers paint that sign on their shields, and we won. The Christian God must be real. Actually, about a decade later, he embellishes the story. He's at a party celebrating his reign, and he says, actually, what actually happened, I saw that sign superimposed on the sun, and I heard a voice saying, go conquer in the sign of the cross. God told me to take Rome in the name of the cross. And he nominally, he converts to Christianity. Nominally, because he refuses to get baptized until he's on his deathbed. He won't do it, and he still murders some of the members of his family. But nominally, he converts, and he gives the Lateran Palace to the Bishop of Rome. Here's a gift for you. He'd been living in a shack on the other side of the Tiber River right up to that point. He builds a basilica to St. Peter on the Vatican Mountain, the first St. Peter's Basilica. The pillars of that are still down in the basement of the modern St. Peter's, which was built in the 1500s. From this point on, Constantine tried tries to make the entire empire Christian, or he pushes it that way. He meets with Diocletian, who comes back out of retirement, and in 313 AD, they issue the Edict of Milan, and the persecution stops. They give all the lands and buildings back to the Christians. Now Christianity is popular, and for the first time, people are seeking positions in the Christian church, not because they love Jesus, but because of the prestige it gives them in the city of Rome and across the Roman Empire. There's even, there is even one story, we're not sure if it's entirely true, where Constantine takes some of his soldiers, it does illustrate the spirit of the time, he marches his soldiers through the Tiber River, and they come out the other side dripping wet, and he says, there, now you're all baptized Christians. You know what you get if you march 100 pagans through a river, right? You get wet pagans. That's what you get. Because you can't choose Jesus for somebody else. You know what happens in the church? People are joining because there are benefits, social benefits. You can climb the social ladder faster if you join the church. So some people are starting to join it, but they don't really mean it. But you also have people that mean it. They love Jesus. They want to live a biblical Christianity. And you get this uncomfortable mix in the church. Some are sincere, others are not, a blend. And what happens is that some of the passion that happened in the early church to make it go and conquer the world begins to disappear because now for the very first time, Christians are comfortable, and a comfortable Christianity is never really a good thing. Something begins to happen as the years go by. The church begins to fight inside of itself. People who are part of the new, comfortable Christianity actually start to resent people who try to live by the dictates of the Bible alone. And the people who want to follow the Bible are pushed to the margins of Christianity. And in Constantine's world, eventually, if you differed with the official version that he came up with, you refused to participate in compromise that led to big problems. And we face a period of history where the church stops changing the world, and now the world starts changing the church. And the worst part, we actually started killing each other as Christians over differences of opinion. We actually started persecuting each other. And where in the world did we learn to persecute each other? From Jesus? Jesus ever run a torture chamber for people who disagreed? We didn't learn it from the Scriptures. We learned it from the Romans. We actually brought Roman-style politics right into our faith. 
And God warned us in more than one prophecy that it was going to happen. You'll see more of them as we move along. And then as years went by, we did something absolutely despicable, and it's still going on today. still happening. I'm ashamed to say there's a lot of it right here in America. We started selling the gospel. The Bible said this writer would have something for sale. What is it? It's food. It's food. And what is food? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I have food to eat of which you do not know. We began to sell religion, but the gospel I am telling you tonight is free. Jesus paid for your salvation. You don't have to buy it. He paid for it for you. But what we have done as Christians is we started selling salvation, and it is still going on today. And I've got to say, I am ashamed of the way some of my fellow ministers behave on TV selling the gospel. Jesus is not for sale. And I get it. you got to pay the bills. I understand that. You can't just give everything away for free. All the, I understand all that. But nobody has any business ever getting rich on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have any business doing that. As we headed into the dark ages, we actually cut off access to the Word of God. This amount, a measure of wheat, it's barely enough to stay alive. You could not feed a family on it, and that was what was for sale for a day's wages. It's not the last horse. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the field. Black horse was bad news. Pale horse is worse news. Remember my brother once hit his thumb with a hammer. Bam! I laughed. He didn't. He came inside. My mom was an ER nurse. She said, I can fix that for you. What you going to do, Mom? You'll see. She began to heat up a paper clip in the stove because there was a lot of blood behind that thumbnail. And she put my brother's thumb on the counter and she told the biggest lie in medical history. This won't hurt a bit. <laughs> she pushed that through. He kicked the cupboard and said something that wasn't Christian. Then it turned black. And it was okay eventually. Black's okay. If it goes pale, you got a problem. It's dead. After a lot of compromise, we slip into the depths of the dark ages as Christians. Let's just own our history. We may as well admit it. Atheists make fun of us because of it. Let's own it. In the dark ages, classical learning mostly gone, but more importantly, the gospel is mostly gone. People stop reading the Bible. Missions come to a grinding halt, and we replace missions with war. We build the church by conquering each other. Sharing Jesus stops. It's a horrible time. There's widespread ignorance of the Word of God. We don't know our message anymore. We don't know our mission, and we don't have our passion. There were always faithful Christians, like a group up in northern Italy, the Waldensians. They still exist today. I stay in their guest house whenever I'm in Italy. They spent the dark ages copying the Scriptures by hand and sewing them into their clothes and going out on foot and secretly handing them out all over Europe. But when the rest of us found out about them, we started to kill them off. We herded them into a cave and lit it on fire. We drove them off a, a cliff at Torre Pelice. It's a dark time. Much of Christianity was still dead. And Bible prophecy is honest about what we would do. God showed it in advance. We persecuted each other. 
You know, so often we want to take the Bible and measure other people with it. Ooh, look, you don't live up to this. The truth in Bible prophecy is God holds the Bible up to us in advance and says, are you going to live up to this? We need to look at ourselves. Fourth horse. Doesn't last forever, though. Revelation 6, verse 9. Now there's a fifth seal. And here's where Christians are remiss sometimes. They read about the four horsemen and they stop. But the four horsemen are four seals of seven. It's not the whole story. We're done with the horses now. But there's a fifth seal that shows us how desperate the situation actually becomes. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God sees the situation. He hears the cries of his people. You ever wonder, does God hear my pain? Yes, he does. I know he does. Psalm 56. You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle, are they not in your book? Not one tear you've shed he hasn't seen, not one sleepless night. And God has a promise, his kingdom is coming and he's going to make it right. And under the fifth seal, he starts making right. People start standing up for the truth. Suddenly, towards the end of the 1400s, the printing press is invented. And the first thing that rolls off the printing press is the Bible. It is the word of God. And brave people begin to recapture the spirit of the early church. And you've got the Wycliffs and the Tyndalls standing up with the gospel again. And that moves us down through the 1500s and the 1600s. And it takes us to the sixth seal. And I want you to follow me very, very carefully because now in history we've come down to roughly the 1700s. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. It mentions a bunch of stuff, an earthquake, sun goes dark, moon turns red, and the stars fall. Those are very important. Our generation keeps looking for that. Oh, that's going to happen at some point. Former generations knew exactly what this meant. Those events are given in a very specific order. A great earthquake, the sun goes dark, the moon turns red, and the stars fell from heaven. That order is exactly how you find it every time they're mentioned. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. It's always in that order. Those are parallel chapters. Back in Joel chapter 2, mentioned in the same order. And why are they always mentioned in the same order? Because that is exactly what happened. Now I want to show you some history that your great, great, great grandparents absolutely knew. Go back and read what they wrote. For some reason in the last few generations, we have stopped talking about what we're about to see. It's just gone off the radar, and that should raise some flags in our mind. That ought to ring an alarm bell. 1755, right on schedule, we come out of that period of Reformation. 1755, suddenly there is an earthquake in the city of Lisbon, one of the greatest earthquakes in history to that point. Certainly one of the most devastating, and it is an event that absolutely gets the whole world's attention. It levels the city of Lisbon, but it also levels cities over in North Africa. It was felt in Strasbourg, 1,100 miles away. It disturbed the rivers and lakes in Scandinavia and caused tidal waves across the ocean in the Caribbean. It was huge. It shook the city to the core. It wiped Lisbon out. I've been there. They still, 250 years later, have not finished repairing all the damage. There is still damage you can see to this day. And this is an earthquake that people talked about all 
over the world. And when you go back and read what they wrote about it, they said, oh, this is right on schedule. This is what we've been waiting for in Revelation chapter 6. A sign from God. Churches in Lisbon still don't have roofs put back on them. To this day, this one they turn into a garden. There's another one down the road they still worship in, but there are still cracks in the wall and they still haven't finished repairing it. A friend of mine, just before he died, went to a library up in Canada, in Canada, in Newfoundland, and he found this record of this event in Canada, Gosling Memorial Library. I've been informed by several respectable individuals that at the time of the great earthquake in Lisbon in 1755, the effects were felt at Bonavista. The sea retired and left the bed of the harbor dry for the space of 10 minutes. In Canada, the harbor empties. Water's gone. This was huge. The world noticed it. Go back, please, and see what the preachers of the day said. They all knew it was coming, and they all saw it as a sign. They all knew it fit Revelation chapter 6, but for some reason, we don't talk about it anymore. We'll continue with more after the break, and catch us anytime at DisclosureRadio.com. I'm Jean Boonstra. You're listening to Disclosure. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions? Like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Does my life really matter to God? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter the most to you. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. You're listening to Disclosure. I'm Jean Boonstra. Let's continue now with Sean at the Revelation Speaks Peace Seminar. Now, you remember what comes next after the earthquake? Sun goes black. Has it happened? Yeah, absolutely. May 1780, in the middle of the day, suddenly the sun goes out. Goes out. The sky turns dark. We have no idea to this day what actually caused it. In the middle of the day, the animals come home, suddenly, middle of the afternoon. They say it was so dark that you could not see a sheet of paper held out at arm's length. In Connecticut, go and read the legislative record. The state assembly stopped their business, grew afraid, and people stood up and started screaming, This is it! It's the end of the world! It was a huge event, the dark day of 1780. Got people's attention. The poet John Greenleaf Whittier was so moved by it, he wrote... The low-hung sky was black with ominous clouds. Birds ceased to sing, and all the barnyard fowls roosted. The cattle at the pasture bars lowed and looked homeward. Bats on leathern wings flitted abroad. The sounds of labor died. Men prayed and women wept. All ears grew sharp to hear the doom blast of the trumpet shatter the black sky. Meanwhile, in the old state house, dim as ghosts sat the lawgivers of Connecticut, 
trembling beneath their legislative robes. It is the Lord's great day. Let us adjourn, someone said. Then, as if with one accord, all eyes were turned to Abraham Davenport. He rose, slowly cleaving with his steady voice the intolerable hush. This well may be the day of judgment which the world awaits. Be it so or not, I only know my present duty and my Lord's command to occupy till he comes. So at the post where he has set me in his providence, I choose for one to meet him face to face. No faithless servant frightened from my task, but ready when the Lord of harvest calls. And therefore, with all reverence, I would say, let God do his work. We will see to ours. Bring in the candles. This was huge. Our forefathers in the faith knew about it. To this day, we don't really know what caused it. Some people say, oh, it must have been a big fire in Algonquin Park up in Ontario. We don't really know. What really matters is that it happened. Sir William Herschel, the astronomer, described it. The dark day in North America is one of those wonderful phenomena which will always be read of with interest, but which philosophy is at a loss to explain. That might be true. The philosophers can't explain it, but the Bible explained it before it happened. First sign happens in the old world. Next sign happens in the new world. Had such an impact, people panicked. They thought it was the second coming. Now the sky went dark. What's supposed to go along with that? Moon turns to blood. New York State newspaper reported on it. We have seen the dark day, and although I didn't see it, the reporter didn't see it, I was informed that the moon looked like blood the following night. They, they all said that. moon was blood the next night. But then listen to what he says next. It demonstrates that our ancestors knew this stuff. He says, it seems to me the next sign should be the falling of the stars. How could he say that? It's because they all knew this stuff. They all used to read it. They knew Revelation chapter 6. Our grandparents and great-great-great-great-grandparents, they used to study this passage, and they knew exactly what to expect. Did the stars start falling? Yeah, they did. November 13, 1833, Leonid meteor shower. Oh, meteor shower. The Leonids come every year. I know, because every year I go outside and watch them. They're pretty impressive. They come every November. I go outside and watch them. Up in Canada, you have to lay in the frost and watch them. and They're pretty impressive. I've seen as many as two or three every minute. Pretty impressive. November 18, 1833, there were 4,166 every minute. There were 250,000 on average every hour. It got so bright that at 2 o'clock in the morning, people started waking up because they thought it was daylight. That's how many, they described it like a snowstorm. Samuel Rogers was there. Someone on looking out of the window observed that it was almost broad daylight. That cannot be, another answered, for it is scarcely three o'clock. I can't help what the clock says, replied the first speaker. My eyes cannot deceive me. It is almost broad daylight. Look for yourselves. I heard one of the children cry out in a voice expressive of alarm. Come to the door, father. The world is surely coming to an end. Another exclaimed, see, the whole heavens are on fire. All the stars are falling. These cries brought us all into the open yard to gaze upon the grandest and most beautiful scene my eyes have ever beheld. It did appear as if every star had left its moorings and was drifting rapidly in a westerly direction, leaving behind a track of light which remained visible for several seconds. Do you know who else saw this? Abraham Lincoln saw it. It was in Sky and Telescope magazine, November 1999. He was staying as a young man at the Presbyterian deacon's house, and he recorded, One night I was roused from my sleep by a rap at the door, and I heard the deacon's voice exclaiming, Arise, Abraham! The day of judgment has come! I sprang from my bed, rushed to the window, saw the stars falling, and 
great showers. The impact was incredible. People began repenting of their sins publicly. Go back, read the papers of the day. They took out ads in the paper. Please come to my store, get your money back. I've been cheating everybody. They knew it. These events happened on a massive scale. People talked about them all over the world. They happened in exactly the places where the second and first great awakenings were taking place and people were now studying the prophecies and they would see it. And most importantly, they happened right on schedule exactly in the timeline where they were supposed to happen. Everybody knew what it was. And you know what that means? The first six seals are already done. Seal number seven. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Imagine being afraid of a lamb. Doesn't say they're afraid of the lion. What's interesting is they recognize him. They know. They waited. But they know who it is. Now they're afraid of a lamb. Nobody's afraid of a lamb. God is underlining how senseless it is to be lost. Some people never make up their minds, and now he comes. They know who he is, but they don't know him as a friend. The seventh seal is opened. The Lamb opens it. Revelation 8, verse 1, when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Why would there be silence in heaven? It's because nobody's there. How do I know? Jesus said, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him... Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Heaven falls silent, probably for the first time since the crucifixion of Christ. And the reason it's silent is because all of heaven is interested in you coming home. And they all say, we're going with you, Jesus. And all the angels come here to get us. It's really going to come. We are really this close. Do you know why God gives us prophecy? I I used to live way up north on the Alaska Highway. That's why your Minneapolis winter doesn't frighten me much. And I remember there were times I would have to drive between cities and up there. I lived in a district I had to service. It took 15 hours to drive across it. It's huge country. And sometimes in the middle of the night, there'd be a snowstorm so bad that I couldn't see the road in front of me. Worse than that, I couldn't see where the road ended and the forest and the fields began. I couldn't see anything. And so I would crawl along, white-knuckled, sweat on my forehead. Oh, please, God, don't let me go off the road. Maybe that describes your life. White-knuckled. 
hanging on, hoping you make it. I would drive, it would go on forever, and suddenly I would see it. A radio tower with a red beacon on top. Boop. I could see it, red light. Boop. I think, that's it, I'm two-thirds of the way. I am two-thirds of the way home, and I know the next thing I'm going to see, just around the next corner, I'm going to see the glow of my town on the horizon. And I'd go around the corner, and there it was. And I'd be home any minute. So here we are in this life, hanging on with white knuckles. Please, God, how much further? How much further? So God turns on all kinds of lights. First seal. Second seal. So you know when we're almost Let me ask you. Everything indicates we're running out of time. We're right on the edge of eternity. Are you ready for Jesus to come? There's a heartbeat until Jesus comes. We're that close. When the Lamb comes, is He your friend? It's your determination to greet Jesus as a friend. I'd invite you to stand as we close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we can see tonight that you have not left this earth unattended for even a moment. And here we are in the last hours we see Jesus and we love Him because He first loved us. We can't wait to see the eastern sky light up. We cannot wait to see you face to face as you come with every angel. Lord, we're standing to say our hearts belong to you. We accept the gift of Christ We believe that you forgive our sins and we are ready to go home. And we thank you for your love. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we've run out of time for today. You've been listening to Sean presenting a seminar series called Revelation Speaks Peace. Now you can get your CD or DVD copy. Just look for the link at DisclosureRadio.com. And that's also where you can find show notes and other episodes of this program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jean Boonstra, and this is Disclosure. Again, that's DisclosureRadio.com. Disclosure Radio.